Junior Church. Yep, there are clipboards for the younger kids if they'd like them. And Tom Scriven, who took my month for me so I could take more naps with my baby, will be preaching again. We just thank you very much. Glad to be here. The book, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things that must, must soon take place. Uh, this, was, this was written in the first century, so soon is a relative term to God. One day is as a thousand years, it says. But um, Jesus, Jesus is coming again. He is. We don't know when. We don't know the circumstances, if it's going to be in the morning or the afternoon. I always thought, what if, what if Jesus came on Easter Sunday? Wouldn't that be fantastic? And Resurrection Sunday, and boom, just like that, all the Christians disappear. But um, as, I, as I've read through these letters again that Jesus gave to John to write to the seven churches... Uh, I, I wanted this morning's message to end on a positive note, and it does, because there's some very hard and serious things that he shares here. But he's sharing them as, as one, that, uh, one that's almost been wounded because the love of his life, his bride, has forsaken him in some cases. So he wants to win them back. He wants to tell them, come back to me. My arms are wide open. And we will see that as we progress through these letters. I wondered this morning as we begin, did you ever, did you ever have to confront somebody that you really cared about? Did you ever have to go to them and you knew it was your job? You knew no one else would do it. And you knew that there were some tough things that you had to say to them, but it needed to be said. You know, was it awkward? Were there tears? Or was there anger or denial or just maybe silence? Well, I, I never knew you thought that. <laughs> and how did it turn out? Was there a change? Was there repentance? Was there weeping? Was there a better relationship? Or did everything sort of shut down after that confrontation between you and the other person? Jesus sends this next message to the church in Thyatira, a small city ruled by the Romans for over 300 years. It was located between Pergamum and Sardis in a valley region that was almost impossible to defend, and thus they were conquered on a number of time, number of occasions. We don't know a lot about this city, except for the account in Acts chapter 16 of Lydia, a God-fearing woman who came to faith in Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and Silas. She was a businesswoman. She was a uh, talented lady from Thyatira who sold expensive purple goods and opened her home to the missionaries after she was converted. She was probably instrumental in starting the church at Thyatira. What Jesus writes to this church is the longest and most severe rebuke that he pronounces on any of the churches. What is this letter about? Well, I think one thing to consider as we begin this letter is that uh, the, the present age of grace never diminishes God's holiness. I think, I think we as Christians, and hopefully not us, but some Christians have the idea, the faulty idea, that God's lack of immediately judging, punishing wrong, is an indication that he's okay with it. I mean... Just because he doesn't fire, rain fire down from heaven when we commit a gross sin doesn't mean that God has changed at all. He's still 
the same yesterday and today and forever. But we are in this age of grace, so to speak. You know, in the Old Testament, if you did certain things, you got stoned to death. <laughs> uh, you, you were uh, tried and found guilty and you were put out and there were grave consequences. Don't touch the mountain. Don't touch the holy ark. Uh, people were killed for those things happening. But those things don't happen today. And so we think, well, God is somehow okay with wrong and sin. That's never the case. Is that true regarding stealing or speeding down the highway? No, it simply means you haven't been caught yet. <laughs> there are consequences and <laughs> that day will come. But notice who is addressing this letter. And to the angel or the messenger, which we found out in chapter one was probably uh, the elder or the pastor of the church at Thyatira. So this letter is being written specifically to uh, a leader of the church. Write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. So there's no doubt about who's writing this letter, who's dictating this. He is the Son of God. He's not addressed that way, way in the other letters. He's called the first and the last. He's called the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword at Pergamum. But here we have the words from, directly from the Son of God. So listen, very significant. There's no question who's addressing this church family. Not an angel, not a prophet, not uh, a disciple, but God's son, Jesus. He's the son of God. And he is described here, John says, who has eyes like a flame of fire. And we said, as, as Jesus addresses each of these letters, there's an aspect of what the, this holy individual that John sees exiled on the island of Patmos as he begins to receive these letters, as he begins to receive the revelation. And he des describes this one that he sees having eyes like a flame of fire. Did you ever see anyone like that? Maybe you're, you did something really bad, like you smashed the back end of your, your dad's car up and you brought it home and you put it in the garage hoping that he wouldn't see it. But all of a sudden he comes in and he looks at you and he says, son, I just came out of the garage. What happened to my car? And his, just his look <laughs> freezes you in your tracks. Well, this is even more significant because it says that his eyes are flaming with fire, indicating that nothing escapes the gaze of Jesus Christ. He knows thoughts. He knows intentions. He knows motives. He knows what people are doing to other people. He knows what's going on at Thyatira. He knows what's happening there. And his feet are like polished bronze, a precious metal composed of silver and gold, even more glittering and shining than gold. It's symbolic of the one who stands as the divine judge. He has that authority and that office. He is the rightful judge over his church. And what is the evaluation? I know your works, something he states in each of the letters. There are no secret secrets. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's going on at your church. He knows what's going on at First Baptist Church in Westfield and First Baptist Church in Sherman and other churches in Chautauqua County and Methodist churches, Catholic churches, uh, Episcopalian churches, Lutheran churches, Baptist churches. He knows what's happening there. He knows nothing's taking him by surprise. But he goes on to say, I know, I know of your works, your love, 
your faith, your servant service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first works. Now, those are all good things, aren't they? This was, uh, this was a, a, a good ministry. It was a working church. They weren't stagnating or just getting by. As one commentator says, service represents spiritual ministry. They were ministering there. That goes beyond just functioning, just getting by. They were serving. Service is much more than simply attending, though. I've run into some Christians where it seems like, uh, well, you know, I come to church on Sunday morning. God must be pleased. Well, he's glad that you're here, but that's not Christian service. That's building us up as a body of Christ. Hopefully that's nourishing you. Where would you be? And, and we were. Your church was probably shut down, as was ours when COVID initially hit. And boy, the, the first Sunday, it was kind of novel. But after that, uh, there, was a, there was something missing, you know, not connecting with people. And we tried to have a parking lot, lot service for a while, and you could wave at people in their cars. But that just wasn't the same as greeting people and giving hugs to people and uh, talking one-on-one -on -one and face-to-face -to, -face to people. No, coming to church is not serving the Lord. It's instructed in the Bible to do that. We're supposed to do that. We need that. We need each other. But it's not serving the Lord. It was a loving church. Ephesus had lost their first love. Thyatira maintained their love. It was a loyal church family, he says. The word for faith here means they were faithful. People were there when there was a service. If something needed to be done, somebody jumped in and did it. They were faithful. Their faith was evidenced by... <coughs> Excuse me, I have a little cough too. By serving others, working for the Lord, the like the early church in the book of Acts, they met together and prayed and fellowshiped with one another. It was a patient group of followers. They, they knew that things didn't happen overnight. They were patient. They were continuing despite trials. So Jesus, you know, commended them for these things. But... <laughs> I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, your latter works exceed the first, but, or nevertheless, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. Maybe they were a little too patient. Maybe they were a little too compliant and agreeable because that can happen also. The, the church, if you remember the church at Pergamum, they, they were a compromising church. Uh, the Bible writes that they were holding fast to many things, but they had this teaching of Balaam. They practiced sexual immorality. And as I thought this, because this, this problem comes up in many of these letters, this idea of, sexual immorality and how it's tied in together with idolatry. And it was in the Old Testament. It was with uh, King Solomon, the wisest man perhaps that's ever existed. But he got to himself many different wives and concubines and the Bible infers that his heart was turned away from the Lord because he began to embrace these other gods. And so what, what is the connection between sensuality and sexual immorality and idolatry? Well, could it be that the, 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 the greatest form of, of, uh, of selfishness is me wanting all of my pleasures fulfilled and finding that in someone else. And if 
I can't find it in one person, I'll find it in someone else. And that is self-worship. That's worshiping ourselves and not finding our sufficiency in Jesus Christ. And there was compromise at Pergamum, but there was tolerance at Thyatira. And haven't we used and abused that word maybe too much in the United States of America over the years? You just have to be more tolerant of people. I mean, you just need to get along. And there's an element of truth to that. Jesus didn't go around pointing his finger at everyone that was doing something bad in his day. <laughs> and they, they, he saw everything that was happening. But there is a difference between tolerance and compromise. The word tolerance defined is the acceptance of the differing views of other people. For instance, in religious or political matters and fairness toward the people who hold these different views. But, but, tolerance is not acceptance and participation of something which God has already condemned. You, you think of Lot. Remember that Lot and Abraham's servants were kind of, uh, were kind of, uh, getting in a conflict with each other. And so Abraham said, well, you go in this direction or this direction. It doesn't matter to me. You choose the plains or you choose the hillside and then I'll take the other. And the Bible says that Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom and then eventually moved into Sodom. And Abraham stayed on the plains and prospered and his crops flourished and his his uh, animals continued to produce, and he was blessed. And Lot eventually moved into Sodom. Now, in the, in the, in the New Testament, we realize we, the Bible calls him just Lot. Well, he moved into Sodom, and God, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He, uh, he, to some degree, tolerated what was going on in Sodom, but I don't think he ever participated in their activity. But he was in a very dangerous position, wasn't he? In fact, when it came time to leave, he grabbed his wife, took his daughters, and literally dragged them out of the city. But his wife, uh, her heart was there. She had compromised. And she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. No. Tolerance is not acceptance and participation of something which God has already condemned. Think of Jesus with the woman taken in adultery, and they brought him, this woman, before Jesus and said, well, this woman was found in the act of adultery. Uh, the Old Testament law says that we should stone her, but, but what do you say? And Jesus never condoned her lifestyle. He confronted them as well. He just included the, uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. He included her with them. Well, which, is, which of you is without sin? And they dropped their stones and they left. And Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? And uh, who is here to accuse you? And she said, no one. And Jesus said what to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go and don't sin anymore. So Jesus never tolerated it. He's the example. He never in, in, endorsed partic participation in it. Idolatry has existed since the fall of man, but God has passed sentence on it for time and eternity. Listen to what the Old Testament says. God, God announces, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, none, nothing. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want you just for myself. And I'm willing to take care of you and provide for you and love you and nurture you and help you and protect you. But don't have any other gods before me. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But, but, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It may not be our job to pass judgment on idolatry in whatever form it takes, but it's our job to stay away from it. Stay away from it. And so what he's talking about here is the Jezebel cult. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, but she refused. Who was Jezebel? Well, she was the wife of one of the wickedest kings in all of Israel. It's interesting to note that most queens are never mentioned, but Jezebel's mentioned because she was, a, she was one of a kind. She was a wicked, wicked woman. You remember what she did. She worshiped idols. She encouraged others. In fact, she promoted the worship of Ashtaroth, that included over 800 prophets and involved sexual, sensual immorality and the killing of the prophets of God. Without question, Jezebel was the epitome of subtle corruption and a symbol of immorality and idolatry. She wanted to kill the prophet Elijah, in fact. And Elijah became fearful and ran, and here he stood up against 450 prophets of Baal, and pronounce to all the children of Israel, choose you, choose you this day whom you will serve. If you'll serve the gods of pagan idolatry or if you'll serve the God of heaven. And he called down fire from heaven that consumed the altar. And the people cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they had the prophets of Baal, many of them, about half of them slain. But Jezebel said, you're not getting away with this. And all of a sudden, Elijah, for various reasons, became fearful and took off. But all of, this, all of this idolatry and immorality appeals to self-seeking, pleasure-seeking, self-centered people. Party and gratification, that, that's all some people live for. Just the next holiday, the next Friday night, when I can go out on the town and live it up and have a big time, and have a party. And uh, yeah, I'll go to work Monday through Friday, and I'll put in my time, but just give me the weekend. You know, give me the sports on TV and the six-pack, and I'm all set. <laughs> and some people live like that. Jezebel threatened the godly prophet Elijah, had an innocent man, Naboth, murdered because her husband, the king, wanted his vineyard for himself, God warned them both of certain punishment through the prophet. You're not going to get away with this. God knows what's going on. Actually, Ahab repented, and he turned uh, away from some of that wickedness. But Jezebel, she never repented. <clears throat> but you know how long it was between the prophet told them that God was going to judge them? And when that judgment actually took place, it was over 20 years, two decades. Ahab dies and Jezebel thought, you know, she'd gotten away with it. But eventually, God repaid them. Jezebel never repented and was thrown off a wall. The dogs ate her and God said that that exact thing was going to happen. Though she died, as one commentator says, though she died a tragic death, some thousand years before this letter to the church in, in Thyatira was written, her spirit had revived apparently in a prophetess who had become prominent in Thyatira. And so he speaks of Jezebel. Well, this wasn't 
Jezebel reincarnated, but this was someone who was just as evil in her heart as Jezebel. Claiming, claiming to be a prophetess of God, this new Jezebel was causing even the, the Christians to indulge in immoral practices. See, the problem with tolerance is eventual acceptance, and eventual acceptance leads to eventual practice. Think of where we've come in 40 years, morally, uh, in regards to the family, in regards to husbands and wives and relationships. Uh, it's, been, it's been gradual to some degree, but look where we are now. What's being accepted and practiced? And the Son of God has a message to this church. Why was Jesus so opposed to what was going on? Because indulgence fueled was fueled by impudence. Have you heard this before? Don't, don't, don't preach to me. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Who are you to judge? Who do you think you are? Are you perfect? Don't tell me what to do. Jesus wanted change because, because they, they had left him in, in their relationship. They, they had some good works. They had some good deeds that they were doing, but they, 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 they were leaving him in their relationship. They'd, they, were, they were giving themselves to idolatrous worship and taking them away from him. He wanted a change of heart, something that would turn the people back to him. And, and God wanted them to respond. Notice what it says, I gave her time to repent. Just like the Old Testament, Old Testament Jezebel, she had 20 some years to repent, but she didn't, she refused. Does this sound like anything in our culture today? Well, it gets worse as the tribulation takes place on earth. And it says that if, if she does not repent, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Revelation 6 through 19, the description of the, the vials and the plagues and the trumpets that are going to come upon this earth, great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. The consequences of sin, the wages of sin, Paul said, is death. That's just, that's just a fact. And I will strike her, her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." God never, God never meant for people to live like that. It says in Revelation chapter 9, during, during the tribulation period, these people have gone through horrific, horrific calamities and destruction and tribulation. And it says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their sorceries, or their sexual immorality or thefts. Romans or Revelation 9, 20 and 21. God never meant for people to live like that. And he doesn't want them to. The Son of God will judge immorality. He is forever holy. He is forever just. He is unquestionably true. He is perfectly pure and transparently righteous. It's never, it's never the idea that God delights in punishment. But judgment is the reward or payment of disobedience. Ezekiel 18, 23, 24, the prophet says, writes of God, I have, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness 
and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. It's, it's just like a parent. I mean, a parent can tolerate uh, disobedience for so long, but there has to come a point where the parent says, you can't live like this. I, I, I can't endorse this, this. There must be some punishment. The fact of God's mercy and grace having limits is evident throughout the word of God. Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden. Noah pleaded with the people for 120 years before the flood came. Sodom and Gomorrah were warned, but mocked the warning and they were destroyed. The children of Israel went into captivity and some perished. Would, would you really want a God that you could control? Would you really want a God? Would we really want a God that tolerated sin? There, there are some people that feel like, well, you know, when I see the big man in the sky, I'm just going to explain to him the way things are. I don't think so. Not at all. God is so much holier than that. And this, But in closing of this letter, the Son of God gives great hope to those who have not gone down that road. Look in verse 25. To the rest of, verse 24, I'm sorry. To the rest of you in Thyatira, because not everybody went this route. Not everybody was joining the political bandwagon of the day. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end. To him, notice, I will give authority. So you held on, you conquered, you overcame. I'm going to give you rulership, authority over the nations, and you'll rule them with a rod of iron, as when an earthen pot is broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Son of God gives great hope. He will give power. He will give rule. The gift of the morning star. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus says that I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Some have suggested this indicates just eternity, the bright morning star, and spending that with the one who conquers. He's an exceedingly jealous bridegroom. He's an undeniably just bridegroom. And he's a magnanimously generous bridegroom. And we move on to the church at Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The church at Ephesus no longer loved the Lord. The church at Smyrna needed encouragement in the midst of suffering and trial and persecution. The church at Pergamum compromised God's truth mixing it with error. The church at Thyatira accepted and practiced unholy living. The church at Sardis is a sad situation of a group of people who were so self-deceived that they actually imagined themselves to be alive and well when the exact opposite was true. It made me think of the story by Hans Christian Andersen, which was written in the year 1837, about the emperor's new clothes. Some of you know that story. This vain king, this vain emperor, had nothing more to do in his kingdom than to parade around and present himself as someone superior than the rest of the people. In his vanity, he wanted a new wardrobe made, and so... 
a group of weavers decided to oblige the king and they made him some, they were going to make him some clothes out of, out of this invisible fabric that only those who were worthy could really see. And so they made the clothes for the new king and fitted him for it and he headed out to the people without his new clothes on because they were invisible. He was so self-deceived. The only thing worse than being duped or deceived is being spiritually misled and eternally lost. Sardis was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, a wealthy city with some of the grossest, grossest forms of pagan idolatry, such as Sibella. From her beginnings as a nature goddess, Sibella eventually came to be viewed as the mother of all gods and the mistress of all life. Now, William Barclay points out that even on pagan lips, Sardis was a name of contempt. Its people were notoriously loose living, notoriously pleasure and luxury living. Sardis was a city of decadence. In old days, it had been a frontier, frontier town, but now it was a byword for slack and effeminate living. An earthquake destroyed it at one point. Coins of gold and silver were first produced here and depicted sanctuaries to Aphrodite, the goddess. A great colonnaded marble road of 4,600 feet out of marble divided the Roman city. The population was around 120,000 people. Notice the introduction of the author here. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven in the Bible is a number of completion. The seven spirits of God represent God's presence, evidence by his spirit, the all-knowing, all-encompassing spirit of God who is aware of everything that's going on. The words of him who has the seven stars. The churches are his. They aren't human inventions. They're the Lord's, and he holds them in his hands. He gives words about their works. Christ sees and he knows their reputation. But notice here, as he begins to speak, there are no words of commendation. He doesn't say, I know your works. I know you have a good name. I know that you have love or service or patience or endurance. There's none of that. There's no words of commendation. He says that you are a church. You are alive. <laughs> you're alive, but you're dead. How can you be a dead, alive being functioning like that? There was physical substance. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. They were living dead congregations. And the term dead here is spiritually dead. It does not mean to be, to not have breath or life in you anymore, the lifelessness. But it means and I quote here, destitute of a life that recognizes and is devoted to God because it is given up to trespasses and sins, inactive as respects doing, as respects doing right. The church of Sardis, William Barclay says, was at peace, but it was a peace of the dead. And they didn't even know it. Are there churches like that today? They meet Sunday morning. They have nice stories. They have nice songs. But spiritually speaking, there's no life. There's deadness. Studies from the 1990s to the year 2000 indicate a, a dramatic drop in church attendance. And over the last five years, that number has probably doubled. And there are a number of reasons by why people stop coming to church. One of the main reasons is gossip and conflict in the church. Another reason is hypocrisy in the church. Another reason is people don't feel like they fit in in the church. And another reason is because they're not willing to deal with sin in their life. Jesus refers to the church at Sardis as alive in name, but void 
of life according to God's evaluation. They were more like a civic club, a social gathering. Someone, someone has commented, one commentator, commentator said that churches do not die from the outside. In fact, persecution often unites a church, as with Smyrna. Churches do not die by suicide. They don't vote and say, well, you know, at the end of, at the, end of the year, our church is going to die. No, no church would ever do that. It just sort of happens over time. The church will not die because of abandonment, abandonment by God. God did not desire the death of this church at Sardis, not at all. He was still available to the remnant that followed him. He never leaves. They, they were to depart from him like the children of Israel, forsaking the Lord. I don't have time. Too, too many other things. In the summer, I've got to go to the beach or camping. In the winter, I've got to go to Florida. I, you know, I just don't have time for church anymore. Other things crowd that out. But you know, there are two things the Bible says apart from God that are going to, to last forever. One of them is your soul and mine. We will live forever. And the other one is the word. Your word, O oh Lord, is forever settled in heaven. In fact, it says heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. A certain factor in a church dying is spiritual apathy to studying the word of God. That's why Sunday school is important. That's why Bible studies are important. That's why listening to the word of God. Remember what Paul said to Timothy? Remember your Awana days, if you were ever in Awana? What is the Awana verse? Study to show yourself. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's been a few years since Awana, but it's burned into our memories. 2 Timothy 2.15. No, Jesus gives the remedy. Study. Study the, the, the word of truth. It means to give all diligence. It means the, to be the interest of oneself most earnestly desired. And as he gives the remedy here in chapter 3 and verse 3, I know your works, but he says, I want you to wake up. You're dead. Wake up and strengthen. There, there is a remnant. There is something to... There's a, still a seed here. It's like that Amish bread dough, that friendship bread. You take a little starter and you give it to someone else and you just keep passing it around. There, there's still some life there. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember that which you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And to the remnant, he says, if that doesn't happen, I will come to you because you're sleeping and you won't even know that I've come. I will come as a thief. I will, I will, you will not know what hour I come. I will come against you. But yet, verse 4, you have still a few names in Sardis, a few names, who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. This is a great promise, great promises that he gives. He gives it to the few, a few that were still faithful. Jesus has a message for those who have not soiled their garments. How do, how do garments get soiled? Well, uh, how does water get polluted or how do stains get on clothes? Not, not just by contact, typically, not just by rubbing against, but by infiltration. That dirt gets into your garment. You kneel in the dirt or you brush up against uh, an object that's, that's uh, soiled. In Jude, the book of Jude, there's only one chapter Listen to what Jude 22 and 23 says. And have mercy on those who doubt. 
Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jesus has a message of, prom of promise. They will walk with me in white. Not behind him, not near him, but with him. They are worthy. What a contrast to those who will be surprised by this unannounced bridegroom. They, th these are waiting. They are worthy. They are the ones who conquer. It speaks of overcoming something. It's, it speaks of having victory. Do you know that you are made to overcome evil? Be not overcome uh, uh, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, righteousness. Overcomers are not consumed with the past. It speaks of winning. Jesus is life. The devil is death. Jesus is the life giver. Jesus is hope. The devil is despair. Jesus is the hope restorer. Jesus is truth. The devil has no truth in him. All he says is a lie. Jesus, Jesus is truly truth. Truly truth. He says that often in the Gospel of John through the writer. Uh, truly, truly, I say unto you. Jesus is victor. The devil is the loser. Jesus is the conqueror. They will walk with me in white. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it says, For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. In 1934, Almeida Pierce put these words to music. Some of you know this song. It's a great song. When I shall stand within the court of heaven, where white-robed pilgrims pass before my sight, earth's martyred saints and blood-washed overcomers. These are they who walk with him in white. And he knows our name. And Father, we thank you that you know us, and because of Jesus Christ, you have made us known to the Father. And he will, he, will never, he will never pass us out. He will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for these promises. Give us endurance. Give us the spirit of Christ, our conqueror. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn your hymnals to page 812. It's way in the back. We'll sing three verses of victory in Jesus, 812 in your hymnals. I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sin and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing how he made the lame to walk again and cause the blind to see and let us cry dear jesus 
come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me ere I knew him, and all oh, my love is to him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about a mansion he's built for me, glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Jesus, my Savior forever, he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is to him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. And you are dismissed.